Brandt, Monet, and even Thomas Kincaid. You should see some of the pictures these budding young artists have come up with. I think the first one is not really a picture of the statue on the plain of Dura. I think it's me. I'm not quite sure how to read that, saying God is better than idols. But this little one wrote, God will, pro- will protect me all the days of my life. But since I'm in the picture, I'm wondering what he's being protected from. <laughs> and then this is one. I, this, the, this is, I really like this one. It's got the statue. Oh, well, you can't see it. We're on the plain of Dura. And what I like with this one, this shows a real evangelistic concern. I don't know where the third one of the boys is, but two are at least on one side, and they're standing up, and they're saying, what are they doing? I'll pray to God. And I was told that these were praying for the ones that did bow down to the idol. So that's a good picture with evangelistic concern. This other one, the statue on the plain of Dura, looks like he has indigestion, because his hands are on his belly and he's got a tie. But I like it because it's got... It must be an Orthodox Presbyterian idol from the East Coast. And this one's got notes in it, so that's got the music. And then this other one not only has the notes, but it's got a flute, and it's got a dulcimer, and it's got a harp, and it's got some kind of a horn in it, and all the people bowing down except for three. So these are great, and we've got some other ones in here, so these are great ones. So Len, may I turn these over to you? All right, these, I'm going to give these to you if the cord reaches, or it will. Oh, there you go. Since you're starting your next 25 years of marriage, I'm giving you something you can put in your hope chest. All right. Now, a couple of things on books for tonight. Um, If you adults are like I am, you'll think of books that you want and forget that there are really good things for children as well. And probably I'm bringing Coles to Newcastle by mentioning this, but uh, if I'm not, Marion Schoolin's Leading Little Ones to God is, I think, the best children's introduction to the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. I mean, this thing is classic. It is great. Um, and I would suggest if you're wanting a gift that you give to people, even if they're not really that interested in the things of the Lord, but they want to teach their little children about God, Marion Schoolin's book is a great one to give. So if you don't have this one and you have children or grandchildren, don't leave without getting it. That's a, this is a classic. It's great. And then also, in our family, we've had a difficult time trying to get our children to read biographies. Um, and one of the good ways you can introduce your children to biographies by giving them little snacks of biographies. John Tallack has two books. One, God Made Them Great, and the other, They Shall Be Mine, a brief seven, eight, nine, ten pages introduction to great saints in the past. Uh, so these are very good for helping your children appreciate biographical material. Not on the book table. I wish I'd suggested it. But uh, the, the OPC historian has reprinted Bruce Hunt's book for a testimony. Uh, That's probably the best lengthy description of what it is not to bow down to an idol, quite literally. Bruce Hunt, who was an OPC missionary in uh, Korea uh, during World War II, at the time of the um, Chinese, uh, at the time of the Japanese occupation, was made to, um, basically, if you didn't bow down to the Shinto idol, then you went to prison. Bruce Hunt went to prison. And that's an excellent book about what it is to be faithful to the Lord in the midst of opposition. Now, the last is something that I want to mention that I, I mentioned to the adults. And I want this, particularly I'm saving this for tonight, for you children. 
because it illustrates what we dealt with last night. I got a call this morning um, from my wife because she wanted to fill me in on something going on in Franklin Square. We have what is, in my opinion, one of the sorriest excuses for journalistic prowess in the United States of America, Long Island Newsday. If you want a paper that's worthy of lining your canary cage with, Long Island Newsday is it. (laughs) Long Island Newsday had gotten a hold of a story about one of our girls in the Franklin Square Church who attends a parochial school. It's not an evangelical school, but it's a religious uh, private school, um, probably the best the family can get in that area of Suffolk County. That school decided for its... uh, musical production for the year. And this girl, Megan Gaffey, was was in the school choir. They were going to do Jesus Christ Superstar. Now, if you don't know what Jesus Christ Superstar is, Jesus Christ Superstar is a blasphemous presentation about Christ in which Mary Magdalene sings that Jesus is just a man. And Mary Magdalene, who of course was a prostitute, says... I've had so many men before, and he's just one more. It says overtly in there that Christ had had a sinful relationship with a prostitute. And so Megan refused graciously to participate in singing Jesus Christ Superstar. For that, Megan was told that she could not come back to school next year. Long Island Newsday got the story and at least tried to be fair in what was presented. But we're already getting calls at the church. Our elders received a call today from a man who said he couldn't get over the spirit because it was mentioned that she was a member of an Orthodox Presbyterian church, that this didn't even have the spirit of Christ. It wasn't even American that a person would refuse to sing something like that. So I would appreciate you praying for Megan Gaffey and her family. They were a very dear, godly, committed family. But Megan is paying the price for not bowing down to the idol. So that's real stuff that happens. Okay, let's pray. We're going to have a quiz tonight. Have you children studied? You did! Ah, great. Van, did you study? You did. Okay. All right. And let me see. Debbie, Deborah, right? You studied as well, right? And Melissa, you studied too. Aren't you, Melissa? But you didn't study. All right, let's pray and we'll give you a quiz. Father in heaven, we thank you for the evening that we have together We're thankful for the glorious weather that you've given to us and for the reminder that the heavens declare your glory, that the firmament shows your handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, night unto night utters knowledge. There's no place where your word is not made known. And thank you that from the book of general revelation, we can turn to the book of special revelation and learn your word, particularly to learn about Daniel, his faithfulness, and the sovereignty of the God whom he served. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, young people. Number one, Daniel depicts the conflict of the what versus the what. Now, don't all jump at once. Now, you expected A.D., B.C., right? That's from the other night. Do you know what it is, Calvin? You don't know. Let me give you a hint. One part of the answer is world. The other part of the answer is church. So now try to figure it out. Daniel depicts the conflict of the what versus the what. 
It's in reverse alphabetical order between world and church. The world versus the church. Excellent. There you go. Very, very good. Second question. How big is a cubit? Yes. Now, let me see. I want to get it right. It's Stephen. I got it. See? You're a Daru. Okay. And I'll bet I know who your grandparents are. And I know if I asked them, they'd know what a cubit is. So make them proud. How, what, how big is a cubit? A foot and a half. Great. Hey. How tall is the statue? In feet. Yes. 90 feet. 90 feet. You were close. You just missed a zero. Hey, what's a zero between friends, right? Next one. Now, this will test you. You know the next question? This is a switch. This is a little bit like, I'm not going to tell you the dream and you give me the interpretation. I'm not going to... You tell me what the question is. Oh, you're not. Okay. Here's, <laughs> here's the question. What does Dura mean? Ah. Nobody knows what... An adult, remember? What is Dura? Yes. Laura. Ramparts. There you go. There's a PhD for you. Right. Excellent. Okay. It means ramparts. Children, what's a rampart? No, you can look that up in the dictionary. Ultimately, bowing down to the idol was the worship of... What? Children? No, not the world. Because the statue of man. Very good. Excellent. How many were in the furnace? Yes, one of the boys. How many? The one in the middle. What? Four. Who was the fourth? Yeah, well, probably was Christ. Says one like unto the Son of Man. We don't know for sure, but since Christ, the Lord, remember, promised to be with us, probably the Lord Himself. Who were the truly free people? Those who bowed down to the idol or those who didn't? That's an easy one. Yes, Lorian. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Very good. Who said, here I stand, I can do no other? God helping me. The children. Wow, that is quite a yawn. <laughs> Leave some air for me. You could tell. The, the sports are having their effect. Who said, here I stand, I can do no other? God helping me. Yes, Dr. Garrisey. Martin, he's a child at heart. Martin Luther. Here's another one. Who said... Obedience to the church's order in the way demanded by the General Assembly would involve a substitution of human authority for the authority of the Word of God. Who said it? Yes, or Dr. J. Gressa Machen. Very, very good. And one final one. Children, what did the three men say when Nebuchadnezzar told them they needed to bow down? You know what it is? Can you, do you know it by heart? <laughs> that, does that embarrass you? Yeah. No, you can do it. Okay. I hope you never forget those verses and I hope all of you learn them, adults as well. Terrific. That's great.
Well, I wish I had learned Bible verses when I was a young instead of all the garbage that I did learn as a non-Christian. So I'm thankful you can learn Bible verses. Okay, turn in your little books that you have to page 25, our evening plenary session, Daniel chapter 5, the handwriting on the wall. In your Bibles, Daniel the fifth chapter. You know, it's the same answer as who is the author of the book of Hebrews. God alone knows. <laughs> I don't know where Daniel was. Daniel chapter 5. Nothing is more sobering than to behold the surprising judgments of God. Paul said to the Romans, Behold the goodness and the severity of God. We see the goodness all around us, and that's what makes his severity so stark. The judgments of God in the permission of young people to shoot people at Columbine High School. Tornadoes that are sent in the earth that wipe out whole areas. Jets that go into skyscrapers and destroy them. It's always a sobering thing to behold the powerful judgments of God. Daniel chapter 5 is about one of those very real judgments. It is late in the year, approximately 539 B.C., 539 years before the birth of Christ. Nebuchadnezzar has been dead for about 23 years. Nebuchadnezzar was succeeded by his son Nabonidus, who was something of a playboy. He was rarely there at the empire. He was enjoying the pleasures that his father had gained. The empire weakened under him. The head of gold that marked the Babylonian empire was beginning to fade. As best as we can discern from secular history, there was a period in which for several years... Nabonidus, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, entrusted the kingdom into the hands of his son, Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. The center of the empire was becoming ripe with unrest. The army of the growing government, the Persians, was advancing on Babylon. And the looming question for the growing Persian Empire is how can we get to the capital city of Babylon by surmounting the walls? The walls of Babylon were believed to be utterly impregnable. It was believed that no force on earth could go over them or defy the overseers who watched for any that were coming to invade Daniel, at that time, as best as we can figure, was probably close to 80 years old. He was a teenager when he was brought to Babylon in 605 B.C. It's now 539. More than likely, Daniel was somewhat retired. He would not have been put in a position to be an advisor to Belshazzar. And it was a very dangerous time. 
empire weakening, leadership had become lax, the Persian government or the Persian army advancing on Babylon. And so somewhat inscrutably, Belshazzar calls a party. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of his thousands. Now children, remember these are true stories. If you could go back in a time machine to about 539 years before the birth of Christ and you could go to Babylon which was built right on top of the Euphrates River and that's going to be significant. Pay attention tonight because listen to how the Euphrates River comes into play. There was a real party that was called. Everyone was invited to come to that party. And the theme of Daniel is now going to be illustrated over against Belshazzar. Belshazzar's name, you'll see in your booklet, means may Bel or may Baal protect the king. Belshazzar means I will be be protected by our leading pagan god, Baal or Bel. May Bel protect the king. But remember that the theme of Daniel is that God is going to thwart all of his enemies and he's going to do it in victory number five tonight. Belshazzar calls a feast. And while he tasted the wine, verse 2, now that's something of a euphemism for saying he was getting rather drunk. As he drank the wine and came under its influence, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father, father could mean any relative, in this case his grandfather, which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple. The writer of Proverbs says it's not for kings to drink wine because in intoxication they perverse judgment. This was an act of blasphemy to take the articles that were to be used only for the most holy worship of God and use them for a profane orgy in which there was drunkenness and no doubt all forms of lasciviousness was at best a very poor act of judgment by an inebriated king. These articles are taken out of the temple which had been in Jerusalem so that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them, adding to the orgy of that night. And then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine, no doubt becoming drunk with it. And in their drunken orgy praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. And I remind you, Daniel is about a clash of religions. This is the true and living God represented by the utensils of a temple that had been vanquished now being used in a sign of triumph to worship the pagan gods like Bel who was to protect Belshazzar and in the midst of their drunken orgy and now children you may want to look at your little green sheets that you have because now you can draw a picture in the same hour in the very midst of their pagan revelry, not a hand, but simply fingers of a man's hand appeared. 
and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Now you've got to imagine what this palace was like. Archaeologists believe that they have found this palace, at least the remnants of it. This palace court area was probably about twice as long as the building that we are in tonight. And at one end there was an area that was carved into the wall that had a white paint or a white plaster on it. It was a very white, bright building, no doubt with torches around because they had no electricity. And the king and his party would have been at the head table, so to speak, an area against the wall. And apparently at some place that was conspicuously lit, what appeared was not a body and not even a hand, but simply fingers that appeared on the wall, probably very large fingers, that wrote something on the wall, wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Now you've got to imagine what that's like. If the king is there and the hand was someplace conspicuous, in the midst of that orgy, when things are confused anyway, hands appear writing in big letters upon the wall. Now, I guarantee you that if you're sitting here tonight and that's a white wall and all of a sudden we see fingers come writing very strange letters on the wall, you're going to be quite unraveled by the event. And they were. The king's countenance, and children, that means his face, changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. This man was utterly afraid. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. Once again, the wizards are being brought in. And the king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation will be clothed with purple, the finest affair to be worn and have a chain of gold around his neck. This was to show a special honor by the king. And he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom, Nabonidus the first, Belshazzar the second, and the third would be this one who could explain the writing. Remember, this was written in a language they could not understand. Now all the king's wise men came, but once again, the third time in the book of Daniel, they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. And then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. I want you to remember, this was a leader who knew that the empire was shaking. This was a leader who had been taught that very strange things that happened to his grandfather, removing him for a time from a seat of power. This was a man who no doubt knew from spies who had been set out that the Persian Empire was very close and desperately wanted to invade and conquer Babylon. And he is shaken. His security is shaken in the same way our own national security has been shaken. Here is Belshazzar's fear. Now note how the queen comes. Some believe this was Nebuchadnezzar's widow. More than likely, this was the wife of Nabonidus, the mother of Belshazzar. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall and she spoke, saying, O king, live forever. 
You'd think you'd be tired of that by now because they don't live forever. But remember that these people were ascribed with deity. Don't let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. Now children, I want you to watch and see the impact of a faithful person in the court of a king. These next two verses you should mark in some way because they describe the impact that Daniel had had. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God, the same language that Nebuchadnezzar had used. This is a man who is different than any other man. He's not like the astrologers, not like the soothsayers, not like the sages, the Chaldeans. There is a spirit in him that is different than any other. In the days of your father, in this case referring to his grandfather, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. I like to think that this is a model of parents, the way you're raising your children, and children the way you ought to be. This Daniel was a fine, believing young man. He had served the king honorably. He was a man in whom there was an excellent spirit. He was gracious, and he was meek, and he was kind, and he was submissive even to a pagan king where he could be. He dealt with the king with a full deck. He spoke the truth, but he spoke the truth in love. He was a man that people could see, though he was a Jew, his Jewish name Daniel, was something very different, even as people ought to see that in you as a Christian. They ought to see in all of you in here an excellent spirit, something different than the spirit of the world. Where the world is arrogant, they ought to see you as humble. Where the world is hateful, they ought to see you as marked by love. Where the world is duplicitous, they ought to see you as those who speak the truth. And where the world is harsh, they ought to see you as gracious. I'm sorry to say that too often the world does not see people like that. But Daniel was that kind of a person. And even though Daniel was some 80 years old, even though Daniel had not been active for a while in government affairs, when Belshazzar, like Nebuchadnezzar before him, realized that there was bankruptcy in seeking to know how to act, it was Daniel who was called out of retirement. And I want you to realize this scenario. This king has taken from the repository utensils that had been stolen out of the temple of Daniel's God. He had used those utensils in an orgiastic boast that his God was superior. And in the midst of that, God sent fingers to write on the wall to shock Belshazzar. Those who served his God were not able to explain what had happened. And even at that point, Belshazzar is made to bow and take a servant of the God whose utensils he had blasphemed to help him out. That's how God always works in history. 
God will always, at the end of the day, see that His Son, Jesus Christ, is honored. He will make even the wrath of man to praise Him. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you... Now notice, notice what he does here. The king realizes that he has, in his wicked hands, smeared by his own saliva, gold and silver utensils of the temple of Jehovah. And now he's got Daniel, Jehovah's servant, in front of him. He didn't want Daniel to get any bright ideas. So notice what he says. He's brought in before the king, and the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel, that Jewish kid, who's one of the captives from Judah, whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? Now he sticks the knife right in Aren't you the one who was brought captive on that land where I got those utensils? You're the one that had a place over the magicians and the astrologers, but that was under my grandfather the king, right? You that one? I've heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. That, my dear brothers and sisters, is what makes God's people so special. God says in the Old Covenant, He gave His Word to Israel. No other nation had statutes like that, making a people wise and godly and understanding. Daniel's wisdom came from the Word of God, which we had learned. Light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. And if that's true of Daniel, how much more is it true of believers who know Christ who is the light of the world and who is our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they couldn't give the interpretation of the thing. I think Daniel's heard that before. And I've heard of you, that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing, even the king couldn't do that. Nebuchadnezzar could at least know what his dream was. He doesn't even know what this is. If you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you will be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. I'm going to pay you well, Daniel, for your work. I'm calling in you to be my personal chaplain and to show you how appreciative I will be for the services you render to me. Look at all the fine gifts that I'll give to you. And Daniel won't be bought. I love the story of John Calvin. I don't know if this is apocryphal or not. But one of the reasons why the Church of Rome so feared John Calvin is that in a meeting of the bishops once, because they had sought to pay Protestants so they would turn away from the faith, the line was that you couldn't buy the Frenchman Calvin. He couldn't be bought. Neither could Daniel. Daniel answered, and he's respectful, and says before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Daniel did not want the king to think for a moment that he could buy the gifts of God as Simon tried to do in the New Covenant period. And Daniel didn't want to give the impression for a moment that he could be bought. But I will read you the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. 
And brothers and sisters, that's a glorious privilege that God's people can have at times. May that opportunity come. What a privilege it is if anyone in authority sits down with you as a believer and says, I really need some help. And so Christians have been able to give guidance. For example, as our country has come to realize that our prison system system is a mess, It is most interesting that some of God's people have been asked to assist in working with prisoners because they have things that work. Is this not part of the great growth of biblical counseling? It works. Follow what God says. God says that in Jesus Christ you might have life and have it more abundantly, something the world cannot give, so that people begin to ask, how the things of the Scriptures can be applied. Now, of course, the challenge in our culture is people want to say to you, we'll have your biblical principles, but we want to have them abstracted from Christ. And then at that case, you say, I can't be bought. You don't buy me with your money when you say to me, I want what you've got, but not your Christ. If you won't have my Christ, you won't have anything at all. Daniel would not be bought. But I will tell you the truth, O king. At 81 years of age, Daniel's got nothing to lose. And oh, does he lay it on the line. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. Notice what he says. Belshazzar says to Daniel in verse 13, Are you that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Daniel doesn't say, How dare you speak to me like that? He says very graciously and winsomely, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom. He would not have gotten one utensil from the temple had God not given it. I would not be here if God had not given it. I trump you. It is my God who has given these things to your grandfather. And he gave him his majesty and glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, My friends, listen, whatever else you do as you seek to be a witness to your Lord in this world, whatever else you do, you are going to say in so many words, in my God, you live and move and have your very being. I say whatever else you say in your evangelism or free evangelism or whatever you call it, You say, I want you to know, you breathe the same air that I do and God gives it. And the only reason you even have a mental capacity to think is because God gives it. And that's my God that I'm telling you. That's what he says. He shuts him up to God. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages, including the people of my own nation, trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. 
and whomever he wished, he put down. I'm sure Daniel remembers this guy who said many years ago, you don't comply with my requests. I tear you from limb to limb and make your house an ash heap. And Daniel says, he could do it because God gave him that power. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him that he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. And don't think Belshazzar hadn't heard that. What Daniel does is what we do when we tell people about the faith. See, the religions of the world will tell you about feelings and emotions and kind of soulish gas. Our religion is a religion of history in which we say our God really acted. Our God created the world in the space of six days. Our God gave a real Adam and Eve who really fell. Our God really preserves the earth because of a covenant with Noah. And do you know the reason why we have seasons? Because God says summer and winter and springtime and harvest will not cease. God is preserving the earth so that He might save His people. And whether you believe it or not, that's why you're here. Our God saved a people in Abraham, our father in the faith. Our God formed a real nation of Israel under a real leader named Moses and under a real king named David. And our God at a real point in history sent a real Jesus, a real God-man who really lived and really died and really conquered death and was really raised from the dead and really reigns over you right now that you might humble yourself and repent and believe in Him. And whether the world believes it or not, that's true. They may say, well, I don't believe that. And a good answer to say is say, you may not believe in George Washington and the American Revolution and the Declaration of Independence either. But if it weren't for those things, you would not even be here. And quite frankly, your own piddly-dink objection to these things in history is absolutely meaningless. It's like denying the floor you walk on, even as you walk on it. And so that's what Daniel says to Belshazzar. These are things of history. God took your grandfather. He gave you his power, and he took it away. He humbled him, but now here's the you are the man. But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart although you knew all of this. I'm very thankful for the opportunity that Billy Graham had over the years to speak with presidents of the United States. We ought to be thankful that an evangelical leader had that privilege. But I wonder... Did he ever say to a Richard Nixon, you've not humbled your heart before God and you must repent. I am very thankful that a Bill Hybels had the ear of William Jefferson Clinton. I wonder if Bill Hybels ever said to him, you need to humble yourself before God and you need to repent.
My personal view would have been if you were going to be faithful, he should have said, Mr. Clinton, if you're going to be honorable, you need to resign from the office you've besmirched. So see, it's a good thing that spokesmen like Daniel can be before leaders. But you want to know how they should speak? Just like this. You need to humble your heart before the God without whom you would have no power at all. And you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of His house before you. You, O Belshazzar, are not first of all a poor leader. You are not first of all one given to your own lusts. You, first of all, have lifted your fist in the face of the very God who gives you strength. And you have caused people to bring the vessels of that God's temple before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. They were only to be used for the most sacred of purposes and you used them for your own wicked drunkenness. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in His hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. That is the clearest statement in all of Scripture of the wickedness of man. You have taken the things that God has given to you and you have profaned and blasphemed His name and you wouldn't be able to utter one moment of your reveling laughter if God had not put wind in your lungs. God owns all of your ways, all of your thoughts and words and deeds will be judged and you've not glorified Him. This is Daniel's version of Romans 1. Man by nature worships and serves the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. And that's the kind of message we do need to hear in our land. You don't have to yell it. You don't have to shout it. You don't have to scream it. You don't have to be arrogant about it. But I say again, whatever else you say to people, when you begin to present the gospel, you see, we begin first of all by saying, you're a sinner and you need to be saved. And that's true. But sin is almost meaningless unless it's sin against God. And salvation is almost meaningless unless it's deliverance from the wrath of God in hell itself. People need to know about God before sin and salvation means anything. That's why Paul goes to Mars Hill. And he doesn't begin as he did with the Jews. And he wasn't in error. People say, well, you know, Paul kind of blew it when he went to Mars Hills. He didn't preach the cross first, and then he changed his ways when he went to Corinth. If he preached the cross to the Athenians, they wouldn't know what he's talking about. He says, I perceive you're very religious. And they said, isn't that great? We're religious of all the people. Well, we've got over 430 idols up there. That's how religious we are. God for the sun, God for the moon, God for vegetation, God is for fertility, God of happiness, God of sadness, God of trial, God of death. All of them are there. Anything we can imagine. And just in case we miss one, 
Here's one to the unknown God. They're all taken care of. Paul says, you're very religious. And they were. Now, he says, let me tell you about the unknown God. Let me preach him to you. He's the God in whom you live and move and have your very being. Even as whatever your own poets have said, we are also his offspring. And he's given a son. And his son was raised from the dead. God giving proof that he's going to judge you. He is the great king. And God now commands you and all people to repent and turn away from your sins, first of all, from your own sophisticated, but nonetheless wicked idolatry. And that's the message we need to hear. Daniel says this to a pagan king. But he says, I'm going to tell you. Now he doesn't have an altar call for him yet. He says, there's more to do. Let me tell you how that God is going to deal with you. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from some of the magicians and the Chaldeans of New York area. You're a clergyman. Tell us, as a clergyman, how do you view this event? And I read over and over. Well, now, don't blame God for this. God didn't have anything to do with this at all. What comfort it is. Isn't it wonderful to live in a world that is totally out of control and that's going to bring comfort to people? Daniel says, My sovereign God sent these fingers. My sovereign God gave these words. The fingers of the hand were sent from him and this writing was written and this is the inscription that was written. And apparently he was translating this. These weren't the letters. They didn't know what this was. This was hand scratch up there. They couldn't figure it out. Of course, they were drunk. That didn't help. But even they couldn't read this. Daniel, this was kind of a written version of tongues, so to speak. He looked at this and knew what it meant. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Ufarsin. Children, have you done drawing your pictures of the fingers? Let's look at the words. This is the interpretation of each word. Children, you can start filling in. Mene. Mene, which is something like the word mina, not a bird, but money, means numbered. Numbered. And it's repeated twice. God has numbered your kingdom. That's what it meant the first time. But he said it the second time. Nay, nay. And he's finished it. We would say, Belshazzar, nay, nay. Your days are numbered. Nay, nay. Your time is up. That's what that means. Numbered. Tekel. Tekel is a word that means weighed. To weigh something, or it is weighed. You have been weighed in the balances, and you don't weigh anything. You are found having nothing at all. Peres. It is a plural form as is a plural form, Ufarsin. Ufarsin is the plural of the word Perez given here. Perez or Ufarsin meaning to divide in parts or to break. Your kingdom 
has been divided. It is already done, Belshazzar, and it is given to the Medes and the Persians. Probably the word Perez used here, because notice Persians, Perez, same consonants in there. It is given to the Persians. It will be divided to them. Numbered, weighed, and divided. And apparently, Belshazzar knew that was the truth. I think it's remarkable, and probably his inebriation didn't help here. He didn't fight, he didn't argue. Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now it was common courtesy to accept what was given. He didn't have to worry about being bought because he'd already told the truth. And if this is what the king wanted to buy, he could have it. But you know, there's a real insult in this. Number one, it didn't mean anything to Daniel anyway when you find out what happened. It's not very important to be third in a kingdom that's not going to last much longer. But you know, that's not what a preacher wants for payment. The burden of a minister of the Word is that people repent. And my guess is that all of these things meant nothing to Daniel. Because his burden would have been that Belshazzar say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And my friends, I hope you don't think that paying the preacher is the most important thing. The best way to pay the preacher is to believe what's said and follow a Savior. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. This is the Luke 12, verses 13 through 21 of the Old Testament. I will build my barns and I will take my ease. And I will eat and I will drink and I will be merry. And God says, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Secular historians confirm, or at least give more detail, to what happened here. And it's interesting that even secular historians acknowledge that it happened on a night in which in the capital of Babylon there was a drunkenness unlike any other time. Very interesting. During that night, the Persians had come close to the walls of Babylon. They realized they could not scale the walls and the walls were being watched. And they would have become dead ducks if they'd even tried to surmount those massive walls. Some among the Persians got a very bright idea. That city was built over the river Euphrates. That was their source of water. That was their source for cleansing. It was their source even for sanitation. If that river could be dammed up and diverted, it would leave a deep river bed in which many troops could go. Apparently, sometime late in the afternoon of that day, shortly before the party was called, a dam was built. And at night, at night, when this party was called by Belshazzar, the final damming up of the river was done. And within a short time, that river had stopped in the city. 
Those who were not asleep were involved in the king's drunken orgy where the river Euphrates would have meant nothing to them. And in the very midst of their pagan revelry, the Persian troops went on a dry riverbed and invaded the city. The secular account is that when they went into the palace, Belshazzar saw them and raised his knife and was killed before he could strike a one. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Here is victory number five. Belshazzar, you should have learned the lesson that it is God who raises up kings and brings them down. You have been found weighed in the balances and found wanting. And you will be brought down. Some lessons for tonight. Number one, I want you to see the sovereignty of the grace of God. Isn't it interesting? In two chapters, you have the grace of God dealing with individuals in diametrically opposite ways. Nebuchadnezzar, whomever he wished he executed, whomever he wished he kept alive, whomever he wished he set up, whomever he wished he set down, who had aggravated the goodness of God for many years, had even been an instrument to vanquish the people of God, and yet God in His grace humbles Nebuchadnezzar and arguably even changes his heart and makes him a new creature. The sovereignty of God's grace making arguably a vessel of mercy out of Nebuchadnezzar. But our God is also a God of wrath. And here He takes Belshazzar, who had not had so many years to aggravate the goodness of God, but it aggravated Him nonetheless. And Belshazzar is made a vessel of wrath. My friends, don't you presume for a moment upon the grace of God. Our God is able to make of one a trophy of His grace unto salvation and unto an, of another a trophy of wrath unto damnation and it is only the sovereign grace of God that determines it. You see in this book the sovereignty of God of whom and through whom and to whom are all things and no one can stay his hand and say, what are you doing? And I remind you, if that's not your God, you don't have the God of the Bible. You, don't, you have an idol. Second lesson, and I'll leave you to develop this one yourself. I suggest to you that this is a serious warning against a culture that takes the holy things of God and treats them so lightly. Marriage is a holy institution of God and we are taking it and making it into a piece of silly putty in our culture. That is a holy thing that is not to be desecrated. Children are a holy thing, particularly the children of believers. The fruit of the womb is God's reward. And even to unbelievers, it is a benefit, it is a token of God's goodness to have children. And we are taking the good things of God in His image and we profane them in our culture. People take the things of the Scriptures and seek to incorporate them in their God-denying liberalism or their God-denying conservatism. A man who mocks God three hours a day on the radio, laughing that he is a talent on loan from God, 
is no better in God's sight than a liberal who blasphemes Him overtly. And when even today, the only way people in our culture, it seems, can use the Bible is by way of making jokes or as clever, tricky marketing devices to sell things. I suggest to you that we are doing culturally what Belshazzar did when he took the holy things of the temple and used them to serve his God and profaned his name. And I wouldn't want to be in that position. Number three, I would suggest to you that Belshazzar is in a sense every person by nature. Verse 22, you've not humbled your heart, although you know these things. Have you ever lived with a proud heart? How many of you by nature? had a vaunted, proud heart, perhaps even profaning the things you learned in church when you were young. Just like Belshazzar. Lifting yourself up against the Lord of heaven. Taking good, holy things that you have been given in your youth. Perhaps your Christian upbringing. At least your baptism. Perhaps the good, ethical things you learned in your Christian upbringing but severing them from the God who alone can give life to them. Doing all those things knowing that it is God who holds your breath in His hand and owns all your ways whom you have not glorified. Everyone by nature, perhaps every one of you just like me, I look back on the early years of my life and benefits God gave me even not in a Christian home and how my voice and my attitude and my conduct was used to blaspheme God. This is every man by nature except one. Except one. One whose nays were numbered, but one who was weighed in the balances and not found wanting anything one anointed with the Spirit above measure, so that all fullness of obedience is in Him, and all fullness of grace is in Him. And as He was perfectly obedient even to the death of the cross and conquered death by His resurrection, there was no word divided given to Him. He was given a kingdom. And He gives it to all who use their life and breath to serve Him. Belshazzar is every man except Christ. And my friends, if you're in Christ, you'd better use the vessel of your own body to the glory of God, or you're no different than Belshazzar. Young people, may I speak to you? You were brought up to be living, moving temples of the living God, all of you. And there will be temptations, young people, you little ones and teens who are in here and college students, even as for adults, to use the vessel of your own body to profane your God sexually, in your thoughts, in your words, and in your actions. And if you give up your body to do those things, I want you to be reminded of Daniel 5. 
Because if you do that, even though you may not be in a real Babylon drinking real wine, you are doing exactly the same thing and you are profaning your God. Paul says, Do you not know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You were bought at a price. Therefore, you glorify God in your body. Whatever else the Reformed faith is. See, the Reformed faith isn't, I made a decision for Jesus, I signed the card, I'm going to go to heaven no matter how I live. The Reformed faith is, if Jesus is in your heart, He's your Lord. And if you're a genuine Christian, you will love Him with all of your heart, your strength, your soul, and your mind as your neighbor as yourself. And when you become dirty with sin, you'll run to Jesus to clean you up. But you will go to heaven saying, I will glorify God with all that is in me, and by His grace I'll enjoy Him forever. That's the mark you ought to have as genuine believers. And as we close tonight in Daniel 5, I remind you that all of our days are numbered. Every one of you in here, you young children and adults, don't just think of the older ones in here saying their days are numbered. Yours are too. And those who are oldest in here may in the providence of God live far longer than some of the youngest of us because God has numbered all of your days. That's why the Bible says, O Lord, teach us to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. And if you want to be profiting from Daniel in this camp, before the God who numbers your days, you say, O Lord, teach me to number them myself that I might wrap myself in Christ as my wisdom and redemption. And at the last day, say, O Lord, not a wicked body given to lust, but a heart of wisdom formed by grace, I give to you. Your days are numbered. Number them yourself. And present to Christ a heart totally unlike wicked Belshazzar. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your sobering providences. We are so thankful for the goodness that you shower upon us. We have enjoyed such rich fellowship and fun. Even this evening, thinking of the bodies that you give us to play soccer and horseshoes and archery and swimming and to enjoy the fun of contest and fellowship with one another. Oh, Lord, your goodness is so great. Please don't let us profane your goodness. Remind the young people in here that they are given benefits beyond almost any other believers in the world. Please don't let them become Belshazzars who take the vessels of their body and use them to worship idols. Please don't let that happen. Let us be a people in here who walk humbly with our God knowing that you have ordained the days of our lives when as yet there was not one of them. And we pray, O God, that we will not have a minimalist religion. May we desire in a maximum way to glorify you whether we eat or drink or in whatever we do. And so, our Lord, should your sudden shocking providences overtake us May they be accidents or terrorist attacks or terminal illnesses, whatever they would be. May we so live 
that when our souls are separated from our bodies and they are ushered into your presence where we will hear the words well done good and faithful servant grant that to us we pray for Jesus sake Amen